Welcome to all of our new and existing relatives and listeners. This is the Healing Dojo podcast series brought to you by the Her Wellness Institute in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us as we engage in meaningful conversation around the complexities of our collective and individual healing. Listen along with us as we free think and practice CAM, Community Activated Medicine, where the people are the medicine. Come as you are and let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healing Dojo podcast. My name is Jasmine Johnson, and I'm currently a student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I am studying social work, which has led me to become an intern here at Her Wellness. I will be hosting this podcast as we have a discussion about boys to men and healing the patriarchy within. I'm lucky to have our co-host, Fonde Bridges, here. Fonde is the founder of Healthy Words, Fonde's introduction of healthy words allows people to recognize and implement positive words into their lives, creating the idea of language that heals. Healthy words are essential for individuals to discover as it creates a changed outlook towards someone's self-view. Fonde, how are you doing today? I am excellent, and I just want you to tell that to everybody whenever I go somewhere. Just, (laughs) you just step out in front out of like magically, just tell them that's why he's here. (laughs) <laughs> to, to help you change the world view with yourself and the rest of the world. I just love it. So thank you for yeah. that introduction. I am super excited to interview Mike today and I'm looking forward to the questions you have. Thank you. Yeah, I can definitely do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. This is- we also have our special guest, Michael O'Brien. Thanks to the connection Leah Denny, the CEO and founder of Her Wellness shares with Michael, we are able to have him here today. Michael is a humanitarian and what that means is Michael focuses on the well-being of humans, what that looks like and why it's important. Michael helps discover how to recognize and acknowledge the things that have dehumanized humans as well as help support others in rehumanizing these areas. Michael has done and is still doing a lot of significant work, which has included, which ha- which includes facilitating the U.S. Attorney's Office Trauma-Informed Care Initiative, working at Village of Arts Humanities, where Michael directed the youth as well as learning programs, and Michael has also directed the youth program at Salvation Army Red Shield Shelter. Michael is the founder of Human Nature, which is a design strategy firm that works with nonprofit organizations businesses and governmental agencies to change how these places understand and advocate for human development and their interactions. I'm only providing a brief glimpse of what Michael does, which he continues to do today. How about we bring his voice into this conversation so Michael can speak for himself. Michael, how are you doing? We are so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. I am, uh, I'm always humbled by the way amazing humans like yourself introduced me. So I, I appreciate that. I echo Fonde. Is it Fonde? Did I say that right? It's Fonde. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Fonde. I'm just going to bring you around, Jasmine. And people are going to be like, Michael, what are you doing? I'm like, well, Jasmine the Brilliant over here will tell you. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> I'm just going to have this typed up and just bring it wherever I go. And I got you guys. <laughs> well, thank you both and, and to your team for having me. I really am um, delighted, excited, elated, all the things. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here. and just taking the time out of your day. So we're all excited. 
So can you tell us a little about yourself and what has brought you into the work that you're doing today, as well as like any important background information? Yeah, I actually love how open this starts because a lot of times people are like, tell us about your career. That's very specific, but I love this. Like, tell me something about yourself. And like, like that's what yeah. Yeah. So I think I start with the fact that like I am human, right? Like I, I am very much so a human being who is figuring out what does it mean to be a human being and what does it mean to actively call on my humanity with intentionality? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to recognize and intentionally call myself to the realization of someone else's humanity? And, and, and like this journey of discovering what that means and dynamics of relationships with everyone from the people who are closest to me to the people who are in the most transactional roles, like somebody who is checking me out at a store, right? So um, I, I am conscious of that and that journey and, and what that means. And that's a lot about, I think, both who I am and who I've been and where I'm going. Um, to be more tangible, I live in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and love it. Um, it. Stresses me out sometimes, a lot of times, but I do, I do love the city. I've been here for 19 years, but I'm not born and raised um, here. I'm born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut, and came to Philadelphia to go to school. I went to school for music here at a place called the University of the Arts. It was a uh, very interesting learning experience. It's a fantastic art school, not so fantastic at holding the care of black and brown people. Um, and so it was an interesting journey there of like navigating identity and, and well-being. Um, the other part of my life, you know, I've kept art with me all the way through, even to this day, right, design strategy firm. So I've kept the creativity and the arts and design methodologies alive in my life um, and just really paired that with a very, an extremely intentional um, dig and dive into what I like to call the mechanics of our humanity. Um, so I started studying, you know, things like trauma theory and um, developmental science and the science of learning and systems theory, just to really try to get into a lot of nuance and complexities around like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in a world where humanity is not automatically given to you through policy, recognition, the whole nine, like just... I, know, I just went on a path, lots of questions, and, and it's led me to make art with communities and people in different parts of the country and in Philadelphia, reflecting on these things and reflecting on challenges and issues of housing insecurity and um, labor issues and migrant status, uh, you know, being a migrant and a farm worker at the same time and the way that labor is, uh, people are abused, right, through labor and the activities in that space. and. You know, while doing all that learning policy advocacy and while working at a family homeless shelter and learning about the way that systems collide in that space and thinking about the well-being of the young people and the way that systems will create nine young people, a young person involved in three or four systems at the same time and have those three or four public systems treat that young person as if they were three to four different people. Um, okay. And dealing with and also trying to help the parent navigate that i remember this one meeting i literally was just like this is so grossly inappropriate and unacceptable and everybody's like what are you talking about i was like this is a human being a young person and 
we are treating this young person because your systems are siloed and poorly designed. We are treating this young person as if there are three to four different people. And when they are disoriented and confused with how to navigate health, healing, trying to be open to get to the help, trying to make sense of the things that have happened to them in terms of their trauma history and narrative, none of this is supporting their journey. And whose fault is that? Why would the onus of that be on this toll road? That's wild. So right. lots of experiences like that that have led me to this place where I'm at today. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, so I heard you saying, like talking a lot about like, what does it mean to be human? And like, what does it mean to be human for you personally? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I call it the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. I don't know for me that my definition in that space or my list is ever evolving because we're always learning something new about the brain and body connection, about intergenerational um, and inheritance, things that are in the space of inheritance. So for me, when I think about what it means to be human, there's a couple of buckets that I look at. One is that what makes us human or makes me human is not best found in like a negative space or in the idea of defining something through negation, right? The, I don't define my humanity by what I am not. This is part of my challenge with um, making anti-racism the only goal in a journey towards equity. Well, can we can we talk about that a little bit? Because see, sure. I, you know, with the healthy words, one of the things I discuss all the time is when you talk to somebody about creating a, a self a goal for themselves, like say they want to have courage, right? So you can't if you discuss it and you say, well, anti courage, I I want the opposite of that. I want to negate the negation is not something of formulation. You can't become. If you only discuss anti-racism, then you're also promoting racism. Like the mind doesn't even hear anti. Racism is all, and that's one of the fascinating things for me about anti-bullying campaigns, mm. because it only promotes bullying. The word that actually shows up in the mind, the neuro, the neurogenesis that is occurring, and the neural networking that is uh, being stimulated is bullying. Mm. It is not not bullying. So. I um I would like I was wondering if you would talk about that a little more like right now about what your notion is about the describing what we are as opposed to what we are not. Would you just give a little more about that? Yeah, yeah. So let's I, I like I love metaphors. I'm an artist, so I love metaphors, Beautiful. I love similes, I love images. So yeah. could you imagine going like, oh my gosh, me and my partner, I want to have the best non-hateful date, and we're gonna have the best non-bad food. And I want to have the best not, you know, it's just like after a while. Right, 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 right. I actually don't even begin to understand that when you line all those things up, what experience it is that I actually want to have. Right? Thank you. And that is profound and powerful because one of the things is that marketers know it and advertisers know it, right? They tell you you love it. You, <laughs> they, they give you what you actually want. And this they is know very, to put you, go ahead. Oh, right. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say they give you what you want and they give it to you repeatedly and to the point where you may believe that is actually what you want. So they actually say one of the hardest things for people to, to land on is an authentic truth about their desires. 
mm. about what they want. I I actually want this for dinner. I want this with rice and beans. I want it from grandma. I want it at 7 p.m. I, and I want some right. of her cobbler too, right? As opposed to saying, I, I just don't want to have a bad night with you. Right. Whoa, well, how did a bad night even show up <laughs> in the conversation already? <laughs> but to is... say I want a good night. So I just love what you're talking about. Thank you, I appreciate that. And that's just so, it's just so real and visceral. And I like to go to some of these simple examples and metaphors. So it's like, get it down here and then let's go to the next concentric circle up and, and, and continue applying the logic yeah. Right, to these other dimensions of how we exist and who we are as human beings in the world. And uh, so I, for me, it's okay to have clarity on what you don't want, but again, it cannot be the end of the journey. So being anti-racist is a step and a larger process that I, for me and for the kind of work I do in uh, you know, the, the clients and, and, and build out and design and all the things that we're doing with systems. We talk about the end game as shared humanity. Mm, okay. So I, I actually have the same issue with trauma-informed care, and Leah knows this, and we share this actually. I think this is one of the things that when we met some, Leah, can you believe it's like seven years ago now? We met in uh, Banff, Alberta, Canada, um, at a conference, you know, hearing her talk, I said, wow, that we have like the same language, right? It was, it was fascinating, which meant mm -hmm. something deeper to me because I could see it in the work and the practice that like we have similar practice, right? In many cases, right. same practice, right? Um, but one of those things that we resonate with in common is like, it is not enough to be attuned to somebody's trauma narrative and history. Right. That is, that is actually one of the ways that we perpetuate limitations on health, on growth, on healing, on imagination. No one is a, in totality, no one is a walking trauma history and narrative. That's right. a part of what's there, but it is not what's there in totality. And some of the most damaging things that I've seen happen in the work and in the practice, both inside of the you know clinical space or the what I like to call the clinically informed space when you start talking about like psychoeducation, et cetera, um, and what I've seen even in non-clinical spaces is that we will attune ourselves and organize around trauma and pain points. And that what that does is stunt the ability for us to imagine someone as fully healed, whole, and in a completely different space of being than the one that I'm encountering. So if right. all I know is it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you, which is a great paradigm breaker and we really do need to have that first paradigm flip if i never get to the next paradigm flip which is a third question and what can happen for you now and to you now with intentionality of design intentionality of curation of people and relationships and experiences i will never get to the place of my actualized full self it just won't happen that way not with I not not if you can't see it with me or for me, or at least give me the space to see it for myself, which means you gotta be able to let me make mistakes and not have that be automatically, oh, you're having a trauma response. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm actually just going through normative development because adolescence lasts for a very long time, right? There's, there's uh, yep. also the potential that what is happening to me, now number one, trauma responses are normal, so we gotta normalize that. 
But number two, it's also possible that what's happening to me is just a normative thing in development that has nothing to do with trauma and everything to do with the way the adolescent brain is just haywire. And, and can we just add that that is also probably shaping you for whatever you, you, you swam to the egg for in the first place as right. you evolve, as you develop, right? And that may have been there to inform who you are going to be the rest of your days. To, like once that flip happens. So I'm gonna ask this question. Yeah. Just because, just real quick, my my uh, question was a little bit about because I know that you had mentioned something about dehumanizing and rehumanizing, and I wondered what that what that was around labels. Mm-hmm. Like, do you find labels impact how we relate to someone that is human? The titles, maybe even titles and labels. I was just curious if you would chime in on that. Yes. So. Um... I think the way, or at least the question I'm hearing in there, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'll take cool. a, yeah. I'll start and then I'll break and be like, is that right? Um, the first thing is to, for me, I recognize that the, the Western world was built on the root of dehumanization at the core. And the access and privilege of being fully human was given to specific groups of people. Okay. And that dehumanization, uh, or that, yeah, that root of dehumanization is what gives way to a number of very thick offshoots. Okay. Uh, like if you, if you think about a tree, right, you've got offshoots of the root and there's yeah. some thick offshoots of that root, racism, sexism, yeah. uh, classism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, right? Nationalism, right? There are all these ways in which isms and phobias have grown from that root of dehumanization and have been organized into what I like to call formal and informal policy. And this is where language and behavior matter in a very particular kind of way. Formal policies are things that are legislated or written down in a handbook, et cetera. They're they're ratified in some format or fashion. The idea around things that are formalized through policy is that I could stand somewhere in an HR office in front of a, a judge on the street corner in front of a police officer, or whatever, and hold up a thing and say, ah, 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 even if you deny me rights, technically on the books, I got a thing here. I, we can unpack that and argue with each other about what does that codified thing mean? Yeah. The flip side of that, and what's even more tricky, is that informal policy is actually more like culture. Right. Right. And with informal policy, I'll give you an example first. Unequal pay for women. Right. Not written down anywhere in terms of the practice, in terms of this is what we do. We believe in here's our policy on paying by based on gender. And here are the rates. Right. That's not a thing. However, it's so widely practiced, it's such a behavioral norm that we have decades of data. Right. And can disaggregate it by race and even do a further breakdown of the way that race and sex are compounding to create a huge disparity in income in this country, right? Again, none of that's legislated or written down, but so widely practiced and clearly speaking to some kind of unarticulated and or articulated belief, right? right? That that we have to begin to think about what are the other informal policies 
that can be codified and organized and data collected around that we could then extrapolate uh, you know, the, the data or, or meaning from the data sets to, to better understand what is actually transpiring. And so I find that dehumanization exists in formal and informal based policies that are governing how our systems work. So language matters, absolutely. And then on the other side, the intention, intentionality matters and, and how we even begin to think about behavior connected to those things. So intention, language, and behavior have to be considered because systems speak in behaviors not outputs and outcomes, right? If you think about a logic model, the most important parts are not your wishful thinking, if you will, no matter how logical and strategic it is. It's not that wishful thinking side of short, medium, and long-term outcomes. It's actually your inputs and activities that are gonna be, that are super crucial. Because mm -hmm. it's how you behave and what you understand as being utilized with your behavior in terms of inputs and resources that will produce the outcomes, outputs, you know, and the outcomes across all three of those dimensions of time. And I'll end here. It is possible to have to have your programs designed and a logic model made that has all of your outcomes pretty poorly thought through and designed, but all of the assumptions and inputs and resources and activities are right for what yep. you're trying to accomplish and you'll still do well. It is also possible to have the right assumptions and goals and like really well thought out outcomes and outputs, but all the resources and all the activities are just off. They're not the right things and you will not get anything on that other side, right? And so yep. this is where to me, just another example of where language, behavior and intent line up together and have this really alchemical uh, you know, relationship of, I don't think one matters more than the other, except that behavior will trump language all the time. Huh. I can say I love you, but I'm gonna do, if I do other things, all I'm really gonna do is mess up the interpretation and meaning you're making out of those words. I, I understand. So I know like you're talking about a lot of like just the importance of like language and behavior. And like, I know that now, like, especially for young boys, there's this huge idea that like boys have to grow up to be dominant, strong, and like um, just kind of like the, the controllers of the world. So how do you think like we can make, we can create a space and make an environment for young boys to understand that like that's not what they need to be and that they can be who they are without being categorized under a label and having to um, be that person. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one nuance is that everything I was just talking about really is about systems, right? Mm -hmm. and, then, and systems speaking behaviors, activities, if you will, right? And when you think about the parallel to the logic model, but humans do speak in behavior for sure because we are the human body is its own complex system. Right. But the flip side is the human body is highly adaptable. It is our Achilles heel as much as it's like one of our greatest strengths. And the reason I call it our Achilles heel is that you know, the the one of the trickiest words to this point in our language, one of the trickiest words in the human language or in English at least is yeah. the word normal. Right. What's normal? What's normal is what gets normalized for you. And that's through habituation. It's through constantly being exposed to it over and over and over again, 
right? What's normal is what you know, right? So what's hard for, I'm going to talk about black boys for a moment because that's what I I appreciate that. I know blackness and I know black people. That doesn't mean I know all black men because we're not a monolith and I know all black boys. We're not a monolith. But as my experience, I can speak about being a black boy growing up in this country. The amount of influences that exist at every concentric circle, like we think about, I'm a little nerdy, so follow me for a second, my friends. Social ecological theory, or what in systems theory might be called like nested systems theory, right? The right. idea that humans develop in systems that are embedded in a system that are embedded in another system, right? So there's me as this human and this, I already got a complex body system that is wildly multi-dimensional, right? I love the health sciences model human development as a really quick, like put the corners on the puzzle of like, where can we start exploring what it means to be fully human, right? I am a biological, psychological, social, and spiritual being, spiritual being not religious or based on religiosity or dogma or theology, but that spiritual development is more akin to the fact that we have a meaning-making or a series of meaning-making mechanisms as human beings, and you make meaning out of everything, whether you want to make meaning or not, whether that meaning is supplied for you or not. This is actually where social cognitive bias comes in, because when the brain lacks enough information to understand what's happening, it pulls from whatever it knows to fill in the blank. You don't even have to try to do that. Those mechanisms work at like the thousandth of a second or right. smaller, right? These are fast processes that you can't exactly outrun you can with practice learn to outsmart it but you can't stop it right right and that's that's a whole thing i won't go down that right no that's great that's great keep going i'm I'm listening to you but i want to hear what you how this relates to black boys because i i love where you're going so when we think about that idea of nested systems theory, right, that I'm a human being with this complex system that is developing across four dimensions at the same time right remember Four dimensions, they're co-occurring, that means they're happening at the same time, and they're dynamic. They influence one another. Right. I don't have a choice on which one of those four get developed because they're all happening. Okay. By default, because humans are social organisms, right? Our biology and our social nature are forever intertwined. We need each other to survive, literally. And by being in relationship to other people, places, things, processes that are designed for me, even without my input, those things are having an emotional impact on me, a psychological impact on me, la, 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 la. Like the influencers across all four areas of my development, I don't have that much choice on as a child. And on top of that, nobody that's in relationship to me gets to go, I only want to impact Michael's psychological and social development. I don't want to impact his biological or spiritual development, or I only want to impact his social development. I'm not, I'm choosing not to impact his psychological development. You don't have that ability. By default means that we shouldn't even have the right to not consider those four dimensions for any human being that is on this planet, bar none, informal or formal policy, right? That's my belief. Now, the problem with being a black boy in this country, my four dimensions of development are happening at all the same time. You barely want to consider my humanity. Let's just take school, right? Nested systems theory. My body in four different dimensions is inside of a family. That system is inside of a neighborhood, but that neighborhood also has a school system. There's a health 
component, a doctor's office, a hospital, a this right. and that. There are basketball places or a park, right? So there's all of that's there. And then I'm inside of a larger city that's also inside of a state. And there are all kinds of other things and those places and spaces. And so all these concentric circles are impacting my development. There are stories about black boys and black people, historically based, and some of them even more contemporarily based, based on what's happening in neighborhoods with gun violence and what's happening with this or what's happening with that. There are religious influence stories that are coming up from like the black church or the Catholic church or this other denomination or you know religious practice that has nothing to do with Judeo-Christianity, right? So all of these things are swirling around and I'm supposed to make sense of my humanity and my identity at seven. And I have teachers that are abandoning their responsibility to help me grow in all four of those dimensions. I have people, or, or, and then there's media and people in these spaces of high influence and power that are pumping out narratives to people who have never met my individual blackness and my individual status as a young black boy and not seeing me as a monolith, and I gotta deal with all that too, that's complex. We ain't even throwing in there that I identify as being queer or gay. That just takes all the whole damn thing to the next level. And and to and to that end, you know, when you talk about these these multi-tiered communications, these narratives, these groups, these because I was just thinking about um, you know, I'm, <laughs> In slavery, one of the things they did is they removed the language so people couldn't contemplate the tears, right? Without the language, you can't even fathom that there are different levels because you can't think it. So it's interesting to think about what they did make sure to include. Right. And so I was curious if you would talk a little bit about, because what you're saying is on one level, there is something where you as the seven, eight-year-old boy you don't you don't even know that there's all these tiers and spectrums and all the systems on systems that are influencing you as a black boy. Can you talk a little bit about um, how how from your perspective, those systems may consciously seek to influence your narrative and your thoughts as a black boy? Sure, especially yeah. if you have any especially, you know, and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about especially a black boy who sees himself as maybe bi or. Uh, gay or whatever, any anything that is not the African American norm as well, part of that 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 other element. So one, so I love what you're framing out here because like going back to the experience of enslavement, which is an act of war. Like I'm very clear. I, I sometimes even say I'm the descendant of prisoners of war were right. enslaved. Right. Right. Um, it was a violent act. African Americanism as a culture is birthed in violence. Right. And so understanding that means we have to understand that the violence crosses all four of those dimensions of human development. Okay. And there's been no intentional journey to undo that violence or to address that violence, particularly across all four of those dimensions. Mm. Right? right? And when we sit in, I mean, just even the fact that for an enslaved African to desire freedom that was organized through formal policy as a mental illness. Understand, right. understand the power of using formal process of policy making to take what is innately human, the desire for agency and power 
the desire to experience freedom and choice right and imagination and joy right is illegal and not is it not only is it illegal you are sick in the mind and i will violently i will violently inform you of that choice if and you because, seek it because of that now you are open to harm it yeah, it right. qualifies that you are now available to be harmed yeah right. you have been dehumanized back to that point you made about seed right you said the seed of western civilization works from a the 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 premise that I, there are those who have and the rest will serve and whatever formula of that is normally uh managed through violence so it's interesting to think about going back to the to the Greeks and maybe beyond that to a little bit further beyond them with Western civilization to today, that there has been a consistent narrative of the, the, the oppressed, the suppressed and the enslaved as a part of the continual formula. And so beyond, how did you move beyond? People that? love the hell out of me. <laughs> I, you know, let's keep it a beat. No, that's 100. I love that People answer. love me. People invested in me when I gave up on myself because trying to make sense of all of that shit, I was like, I'm done. I can't. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. I'm hey, man, at 18, I was going to commit suicide. I was As a black male, I was like, why would I stay here and suffer with these people? I might as well leave and let God figure it out. That's literally, I listen, I hear you. So like, what about for like the people who don't have that support, like, and with all the systems that are like influencing them, like, how do like moms, dads, or any kind of like person that has an influence on like a kid provide that support for them if they aren't receiving that love from someone else, like, especially like for us providers as well. That's a fantastic question. I will say this, there is no amount of self-love that a child or developing brain and body can give itself that will supplant the need across all four of those dimensions of our human development, that will supplant the need across all four of those dimensions for outside love and help. It's not possible. Right. There is no such thing as somebody healing alone. That's not real. That doesn't mean you need a million people to heal, but it does mean that if a child and developing brain and body, an adolescent cannot heal alone. The responsibility is not on the child to heal. The responsibility is on every adult and every able-bodied mind, as much as you're able to, right? Every, as much to find and support young people bar none. Right. Do not start with pull up your pants. We start with, I see you human. (laughs) Right. Pants are at your ankle. It's okay. Come in the door. <laughs> you want to know what to that end? You know what I think about all the time, man? So I've been in schools for doing workshops for 30 years, right? And I cannot resist tying a little kid's shoe. Mm. I feel like it's one of the smallest, but like I almost love getting on my hands and knees and showing them that they that I care. Like it's a small, it's, it's a small thing, but almost every time they're like, thank you. Like they look at their shoes like, yeah, I will time if I don't know how I'm going to just run through here. And so just that moment of, of acknowledge, I hear what you're saying. Cause I, I just thought about that. That is something I practice is acknowledging their humanity in that way is getting right. down on my knees as an adult and kneeling before them. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it is, and, and consistency is the other thing, right? 
No, yep. so parents, caregivers, providers, clinicians, no human being is expendable. The only place we should be drawing the line about having to push someone out of practice of community is when they are choosing to intentionally cont continue harming people. That's the, that's the one thing I tell young people and adults all the time. We don't have the right to harm other people. So if we're going to continually harm, you're telling me that what you do, what you want right now is to not be in community. And I, gotcha. I'm okay with that because I believe in one, I believe it's Adrian Marie Brown talks about moving at the speed of trust. I believe in that. I also believe in your autonomy. I can't yeah. make you do anything. I can't even make you be accountable. My executive coach, you know, I've been struggling with accountability as a manager and like, how do I hold people accountable? My executive coach set me free. He said, you know, Michael, I have this thing. I, I don't know that I could hold anybody accountable. I can agree with the way that they hold themselves accountable. Okay. And I said, oh, that's good. That's good. Right. That's good. Because the onus is on you to be accountable to your own self, to your own right. integrity. And I'm just going to agree with you as your manager that yes, you can hold yourself accountable and we can get this work done or no, you can't. And I'm going to also go with that side and be like, oh, maybe you need to step down. We remove people from a thing or no, right? But I think that as a baseline starts to help black boys reimagine who they can be because we're taught we're right. predators. It's just interesting. I just saw a documentary last night about predator birds. And if you imagine, like it was there were no black men in it, mm. but it was all birds. But to, to be associated with that narrative. And if you see these birds, you, if that if there is a there's only one way you could feel about something coming to swoop down and take your, your chick and coming to grab this and take and terrorize the entire bird village. Right. So I, I think that is profound, right. That, that we, the labeling and that, that how we describe it affects how we relate to our humanity. Yeah. So uh, I just appreciate like the conversation that we're already having and it just like, made me think a little bit more on like just the labels that you know some people have as they're growing up so for example like in the sense of like a boy growing up in poverty and just seeing like a lot of crime maybe even potentially being a part of it um, because that's all they see that's all they know and then just getting to that point where like they're a man and they're still engaging in those activities and I know that you were saying like, you know, you can't, you, someone has to be accountable for like what they do and like they have to want to change that. So I guess like, I'm curious to like, when someone is born like in a lifestyle like that, like how, how do we motivate like that change in them when that's all that they've seen their whole life? Right, so I think part of it is also us reorganizing the story as the gazer, right? Mm -hmm. Right they're not committing crime per se crime is so it that might be happening but i'm trying to survive they're trying to survive mm -hmm. what is it that society has done to organize that a 15 year old needs to be putting themselves on the line to be hit by a bullet in exchange for income to survive that's wild that's on us Furthermore, we've got to, and us being adults and the people in power of these systems that are colliding and creating these kinds of outputs and outcomes in the lives of young black and brown children. The other thing we have to think about in this context is what narratives are we constantly believing and backing up and supporting? 
there is no data that says that black on black crime is a real thing. Right? Only recently have we really gotten to the space where in public meta narratives, we can challenge that. But people still don't fully believe it because they've been so socialized to it for decades now. I challenge people on that all the time. Even just not even that's the black on black crime piece. It's actually that black people are violent, that black men in particular are inherently violent. The idea that black people are inherently violent is the most insidious, but also the best branding job of the 21st century, in my opinion. White people, white men and women, broke our jaws, took our teeth, killed us, hung us, beat us, cut babies out of people's stomach. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to trigger anybody, but we can go down <laughs> a list of the things that are both A, visible through picture and historical record, because B, people were so convinced of our lack of humanity and its ubiquity in terms of like belief that they put this stuff on postcards. These were acceptable greetings through the mail, pictures, right? And this, this is not 1820, these are 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, at the same time that eugenics is moving across the country. Like, so this, this is a problem that we have where we've organized and believe in the remnants of narratives that were lies to begin with, and we don't challenge them back, and we have that opportunity. But we cannot expect the disenfranchised to have the power to fight that back. It is incumbent on us as clinicians, practitioners, narrative builders and holders, healers, people that are crossing into spaces of economic power, working on you know whether or not you believe in capitalism, is different than making sure people have access to income while capitalism still exists. And if you have the power to be over there and do that, how are you also owning the power and agency to challenge these things that we know are driving systems behaviors, right? Like that's a lot of that is on the backs of us and I think what's available here. I know we're over time and I apologize. I talked too much. No, that's okay. Now I really appreciate what you're saying, especially with just like challenging things and not accepting that. And I think that's like a really good point, even though, you know, people might think like, Oh, that's so simple, but it's just a good point to help us realize like a lot of the things that go on that are supposed to be normal, you know, it's it's not normal and it's not okay. And, you know, it's just, it shows the importance of we need to speak up and we need to be mindful that, you know, there is harm in our society and like just sitting back and saying, okay, is not okay. And it's not, you know, promoting us as humans as well. So I appreciate everything that you're saying. And I just want to say to your point that I, one of the profound things is this is re is redesigning the narrative and really coming up with a new way to discuss who one another is in a in a way that is more about our humanity. Uh, I did this workshop at USC where I had people list healthy words about race, and then I had them write healthy words about kin about kin about family. And what was interesting is everybody was able to move out of the context of race and see our positive common ground as just humans. We are all capable of happiness. We are all capable of joy. We are all uh, capable of all the positive attributes. And so to label a group or a community as intrinsically violent, be it white, black, brown, yellow, green, is uh, a disharm to all of us. So I just really appreciate um, 
that insight about changing the narrative and and knowing that we actually have to do this in a conscious way. Intentionality matters here. Intentionality. Yeah. yeah, like it's really interesting the conversation on intention. We don't have time to get into it, but like that is that is hugely important here, right? Because if you don't intentionally, can you just talk about? Can you just talk about it briefly? Like, do you see intention as something that formulates outcomes? I think it influences outcomes, or it can influence. Okay. Outcomes, right, but I don't think. Yeah. I don't think it it does not outweigh, and this is why I called it alchemy before, right? Your intentionality, yeah, yeah, yeah. your intentionality does not outweigh your behavior. So you can have, but, it, you but you find it to be a necessary part of the formula. I think it's a necessary part of the formula because the, the okay. trick here is to keep the intention so forward and present that you have openness to judge and assess your behavior so you can make change. Right. You can make, you can adjust because of your intention. You can make and the adjustment. Willingness to learn, right? Humility yeah. has to be the precipitating thing here, right? That I'm going into this yep. thing knowing I could be wrong. I might not know enough for whatever, how, for however much I know. I got five PhDs in something and be like, I still don't know enough, right? But again, right. it's a dynamic relationship between intention and your behavior that's going to really met out what we're talking about as a result. But it can't just be my intentions over here and my behaviors over there. The constant, so reflective practice matters. I think we really had a powerful conversation and I'm really thankful for both of you guys. Um, and Mike, thank you for joining us and just having this conversation with us. We really appreciate it. And we no appreciate problem. your time. Well. I would talk to you all about this for hours and hours <laughs> and hours and hours. I appreciate you all so much. I do got to run, but Thank you all for, for just the space and time. And Thank you for listening and reflecting along to this episode, Relatives. We hope the content and thoughts you experienced will continue to ignite the healing within. We encourage you to continue the conversation by scrolling through our other podcast episodes, as some of them may have a part two or three and a reflection. We wish you all the love and good energy as you move forward in your healing journey. It is our honor to be here with you. Be sure to check us out on our Facebook page or at www.herwellness.org. And that is spelled H-I-R wellness.org. Take care, relatives.